The following was recorded by John Loth and is intended for educational purposes. This recording is not to be sold or distributed for sale. If you wish to support the work and publishing of these recordings, please visit the John Loth Patreon page. If you come across these recordings anywhere else without my expressed support and find that they are requesting donations for presenting this work to you, you will not be supporting the creator by doing so. This is just a friendly warning to anyone who may fall prey to predatory practices I have come across recently. The Multiple Contest The traditional Balkans of Europe involved head-on competition among three imperial rivals, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Russian Empire. There were also three indirect participants who were concerned that their European interests would be adversely affected by the victory of a particular protagonist. Germany feared Russian power. France opposed Austria-Hungary, and Great Britain preferred to see a weakening Ottoman Empire in control of the Dardanelles than the emergence of any one of the other major contestants in control of the Balkans. In the course of the 19th century, these powers managed to contain Balkan conflicts without prejudice to anyone's vital interests. But they failed to do so in 1914, with disastrous consequences for all. Today's competition within the Eurasian Balkans also directly involves three neighboring powers, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, though China may eventually become a major protagonist as well. Also involved in the competition, but more remotely, are Ukraine, Pakistan, India, and the distant America. Each of the three principal and most directly engaged contestants is driven not only by the prospect of future geopolitical and economic benefits, but also by strong historical impulses. Each was, at one time or another, either the politically or the culturally dominant power in the region. Each views the others with suspicion. Although head-on warfare among them is unlikely, the cumulative impact of their external rivalry could contribute to regional chaos. In the case of the Russians, the attitude of hostility to the Turks verges on the obsessive. The Russian media portrays the Turks as bent on control over the region, as instigators of local resistance to Russia, with some justification in the case of Chechnya and as threatening Russia's overall security to a degree that is altogether out of proportion to Turkey's actual capabilities. The Turks reciprocate in kind and view their role as that of liberators of their brethren from prolonged Russian oppression. The Turks and the Iranians, Persians, have also been historical rivals in the region, and that rivalry has in recent years been revived with Turkey projecting the image of a modern and secular alternative to the Iranian concept of an Islamic society. Although each of the three can be said to seek at least a sphere of influence, in the case of Russia, Moscow's ambitions have a much broader sweep because of the relatively fresh memories of imperial control, the presence in the area of several million Russians, and the Kremlin's desire to reinstate Russia as a major global power. Moscow's foreign policy statements have made it plain that it views the entire space of the former Soviet Union as a zone of the Kremlin's special geostrategic interest from which outside political and even economic influence should be excluded. 
In contrast, although Turkish aspirations for regional influence retain some vestiges of an imperial, albeit more dated, past, the Ottoman Empire reached its epogee in 1590 with the conquest of the Caucasus and Azerbaijan, though it did not include Central Asia. They tend to be more rooted in an ethnic-linguistic sense of identity with the Turkic peoples of the area. See map on page 137. Given Turkey's much more limited political and military power, a sphere of exclusive political influence is simply unattainable. Rather, Turkey sees itself as potential leader of a loose Turkic-speaking community, taking advantage to that end of its appealing relative modernity its linguistic affinity, and its economic means to establish itself as the most influential force in the nation-building processes underway in the area. Iran's aspirations are vaguer still, but in the long run no less threatening to Russia's ambitions. The Persian Empire is a much more distant memory. At its peak, circa 500 B.C., it embraced the current territory of the three Caucasian states, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, and Afghanistan as well as Turkey, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. Although Iran's current geopolitical aspirations are narrower than Turkey's, pointing mainly at Azerbaijan and Afghanistan, the entire Muslim population in the area, even within Russia itself, is the object of Iranian religious interest. Indeed, the revival of Islam in Central Asia has become an organic part of the aspirations of Iran's current rulers. The competitive interests of Russia, Turkey, and Iran are represented on the map on page 138. In the case of the geopolitical thrust of Russia, by two arrows pointing directly south at Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, in Turkey's case, by a single arrow pointing eastward through Azerbaijan and the Caspian Sea at Central Asia, and, in Iran's case, by two arrows aiming northward at Azerbaijan and northeast at Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, and Tajikistan. These arrows not only crisscross, they can collide. At this stage, China's role is more limited and its goals less evident. It stands to reason that China prefers to face a collection of relatively independent states in the West rather than a Russian empire. At a minimum, the new states serve as a buffer, but China is also anxious that its own Turkic minorities in Xinjiang province might see in the newly independent Central Asian states an attractive example for themselves. And for that reason, China has sought assurances from Kazakhstan that cross-border minority activism will be suppressed. In the long run, the energy resources of the region are bound to be of special interest to Beijing, and direct access to them, not subject to Moscow's control, has to be China's central goal. Thus, the overall geopolitical interest of China tends to clash with Russia's quest for a dominant role and is complementary to Turkish and Iranian aspirations. For Ukraine, the central issues are the future character of the CIS and freer access to energy sources which would lessen Ukraine's dependence on Russia. In that regard, closer relations with Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, 
and Uzbekistan have become important to Kiev, with Ukrainian support for the more independent-minded states being an extension of Ukraine's efforts to enhance its own independence from Moscow. Accordingly, Ukraine has supported Georgia's efforts to become the westward route for Assyri oil exports. Ukraine has also collaborated with Turkey in order to weaken Russian influence in the Black Sea and has supported Turkish efforts to direct oil flows from Central Asia to Turkish terminals. The involvement of Pakistan and India is more remote still, but neither is indifferent to what may be transpiring in these new Eurasian Balkans. For Pakistan, the primary interest is to gain geostrategic depth through political influence in Afghanistan, and to deny to Iran the exercise of such influence in Afghanistan and Tajikistan, and to benefit eventually from any pipeline construction linking Central Asia with the Arabian Sea. India, in reaction to Pakistan, and possibly concerned about China's long-range influence in the region, views Iranian influence in Afghanistan and a greater Russian presence in the former Soviet space more favorably. Although distant, the United States, with its stake in the maintenance of geopolitical pluralism in post-Soviet Eurasia, looms in the background as an increasingly important, if indirect, player. Clearly interested not only in developing the region's resources, but also in preventing Russia from exclusively dominating the region's geopolitical space. In so doing, America is not only pursuing its larger Eurasian geostrategic goals, but is also representing its own growing economic interest, as well as that of Europe and the Far East, in gaining unlimited access to this hitherto closed area. Thus, at stake in the conundrum are geopolitical power, access to potentially great wealth, the fulfillment of national and or religious missions, and security. The particular focus of the contest, however, is on access. Until the collapse of the Soviet Union, access to the region was monopolized by Moscow. All rail transport, gas and oil pipelines, and even air travel were channeled through the cinder. Russian geopoliticians would prefer it to remain so, since they know that whoever either controls or dominates access to the region is the one most likely to win the geopolitical and economic prize. It is this consideration that has made the pipeline issue so central to the future of the Caspian Sea Basin and Central Asia. If the main pipelines to the region continue to pass through Russian territory to the Russian outlet on the Black Sea at Novorossiysk, the political consequences of this condition will make themselves felt, even without any overt Russian power plays. The region will remain a political dependency, with Moscow in a strong position to determine how the region's new wealth is to be shared. Conversely, if another pipeline crosses the Caspian Sea to Azerbaijan, and thence to the Mediterranean through Turkey, and if one more goes to the Arabian Sea through Afghanistan, no single power will have monopoly over access. The troubling fact is that some elements in the Russian political elite act as if they prefer that the area's resources not be developed at all if Russia cannot have complete control over access. Let the wealth remain unexploited 
if the alternative is that foreign investment will lead to more direct presence by foreign economic and thus also political interests. That proprietary attitude is rooted in history, and it will take time and outside pressures before it changes. The Tsarist expansion into the Caucasus and Central Asia occurred over a period of about 300 years, but its recent end was shockingly abrupt. As the Ottoman Empire declined in vitality, the Russian Empire pushed southward along the shores of the Caspian Sea toward Persia. It seized the Astrakhan Khanate in 1556 and reached Persia by 1607. It conquered Crimea during 1774 to 1784, then took over the Kingdom of Georgia in 1801, and overwhelmed the tribes astride the Caucasian mountain range, with the Chechens resisting with unique tenacity during the second half of the 1800s, completing the takeover of Armenia by 1878. The conquest of Central Asia was less a matter of overcoming a rival empire than of subjugating essentially isolated and quasi-tribal feudal khanates and emirates, capable of offering only sporadic and isolated resistance. Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan were taken over through a series of military expeditions during the years 1801 to 1881, with Turkmenistan crushed and incorporated in campaigns lasting from 1873 to 1886. However, by 1850, the conquest of most of Central Asia was essentially completed, though periodic outbreaks of local resistance occurred even during the Soviet era. The collapse of the Soviet Union produced a dramatic historical reversal. In the course of merely a few weeks in December 1991, Russia's Asian space suddenly shrank about 20%, and the population of Russia controlled in Asia was cut from 75 million to about 30 million. In addition, another 18 million residents in the Caucasus were also detached from Russia. Making these reversals even more painful to the Russian political elite was the awareness that the economic potential of these areas was now being targeted by foreign interests with the financial means to invest in, develop, and exploit resources that until very recently were accessible to Russia alone. Yet Russia faces a dilemma. It is too weak politically to seal off the region entirely from the outside, and too poor financially to develop the area exclusively on its own. Moreover, Sensible Russian leaders realize that the demographic explosion underway in the new states means that their failure to sustain economic growth will eventually create an explosive situation along Russia's entire southern frontier. Russia's experience in Afghanistan and Chechnya could be repeated along the entire borderline that stretches from the Black Sea to Mongolia, especially given the national and Islamic resurgence now underway among the previously subjugated peoples. It follows that Russia must somehow find a way of accommodating to the new post-imperial reality as it seeks to contain the Turkish and Iranian presence, to prevent the gravitation of the new states toward its principal rivals, to discourage the formation of any truly independent Central Asian regional cooperation, and to limit American geopolitical influence in the newly sovereign capitals. The issue thus is no longer that of imperial restoration, 
which would be too costly and would be fiercely resisted, but instead involves creating a new web of relations that would constrain the new states and preserve Russia's dominant geopolitical and economic position. The chosen instrument for accomplishing that task has primarily been the CIS, though in some places the use of the Russian military and the skillful employment of Russian diplomacy to divide and rule has served the Kremlin's interests just as well. Moscow has used its leverage to seek from the new states the maximum degree of compliance to its vision of an increasingly integrated commonwealth and has pressed for a centrally directed system of control over the external borders of the CIS for closer military integration within the framework of a common foreign policy and for the further expansion of the existing, originally Soviet, pipeline network to the exclusion of any new ones that could skirt Russia. Russian strategic analysis have explicitly stated that Moscow views the area as its own special geopolitical space, even if it is no longer an integral part of its empire. A clue to Russian geopolitical intentions is provided by the insistence with which the Kremlin has sought to retain a Russian military presence on the territories of the new states. Taking advantage of the Abkhazian secession movement, Moscow obtained basing rights in Georgia, legitimized its military presence on Armenian soil by exploiting Armenia's need for support in the war against Azerbaijan, and applied political and financial pressure to obtain Kazakhstan's agreement to Russian bases. In addition, the civil war in Tajikistan made possible the continued presence there of the former Soviet army. In defining its policy, Moscow has proceeded on the apparent expectation that its post-imperial web of relationships with Central Asia will gradually emasculate the substance of the sovereignty of the individually weak new states and that it will place them in a subordinate relationship to the command center of the integrated CIS. To accomplish that goal, Russia is discouraging the new states from creating their own separate armies, from fostering the use of their distinctive languages, in which they are gradually replacing the Cyrillic alphabet with the Latin, from cultivating close ties with outsiders, and from developing new pipelines directly to outlets in the Arabian or Mediterranean seas. If the policy succeeds, Russia could then dominate their foreign relations and determine revenue sharing. In pursuing that goal, Russian spokesmen often invoke, as we have seen in Chapter 4, the example of the European Union. In fact, however, Russia's policy toward the Central Asian states and the Caucasus is much more reminiscent of the Francophone African community, with the French military contingents and budgetary subsidies determining the politics and policies of the French-speaking post-colonial African states. While the restoration of the maximum feasible degree of Russian political and economic influence in the region is the overall goal, and the reinforcement of the CIS is the principal mechanism for achieving it, Moscow's primary geopolitical targets for political subordination appear to be Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. For a Russian political counteroffensive to be successful, Moscow must not only cork access to the region, but must also penetrate its geographic shield. For Russia, Azerbaijan has to be a proprietary target, 
Its subordination would help to seal off Central Asia from the West, especially from Turkey, thereby further increasing Russia's leverage vis-à-vis -vis the recalcitrant Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. To that end, tactical cooperation with Iran regarding such controversial issues as how to divide the drilling concessions to the Caspian seabed serves the important objective of compelling Baku to accommodate itself to Moscow's wishes. A subservient Azerbaijan would also facilitate the consolidation of a dominant Russian position in both Georgia and Armenia. Kazakhstan offers an especially tempting primary target as well, because its ethnic vulnerability makes it impossible for the Kazakh government to prevail in an open confrontation with Moscow. Moscow can also exploit the Kazakh fear of China's growing dynamism, as well as the likelihood of growing Kazakh resentment over the Sinification of the adjoining Xianjiang province in China. Kazakhstan's gradual subordination would have the geopolitical effect of almost automatically drawing Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan into Moscow's fear of control, while exposing both Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan to more direct Russian pressure. The Russian strategy, however, runs counter to the aspirations of almost all of the states located in the Eurasian Balkans. Their new political elites will not voluntarily yield the power and privilege they have gained through independence. As the local Russians gradually vacate their previously privileged positions, the new elites are rapidly developing a vested interest in sovereignty, a dynamic and socially contagious process. Moreover, the once politically passive populations are also becoming more nationalistic and, outside of Georgia and Armenia, also more conscious of their Islamic identity. Insofar as foreign affairs are concerned, both Georgia and Armenia, despite the latter's dependence on Russian support against Azerbaijan, would like to become gradually more associated with Europe. The resource-rich Central Asian states, along with Azerbaijan, would like to maximize the economic presence on their soil of American, European, Japanese, and, lately, Korean capital, hoping thereby to greatly accelerate their own economic development and consolidate their independence. To this end, they also welcome the increasing role of Turkey and Iran, seeing in them a counterweight to Russian power and a bridge to the large Muslim world to the south. Azerbaijan, encouraged by both Turkey and America, has thus not only rejected Russian demands for military bases, but it also defied Russian demands for a single pipeline to a Russian Black Sea port, opting instead for a dual solution involving a second pipeline through Georgia to Turkey, a pipeline southward through Iran to be financed by an American company, had to be abandoned because of the U.S. financial embargo on deals with Iran. In 1995, amid much fanfare, a new rail link between Turkmenistan and Iran was opened, making it feasible for Europe to trade with Central Asia by rail, skirting Russia altogether. There was a touch of symbolic drama to this reopening of the ancient Silk Route, with Russia thus no longer able to separate Europe from Asia. Uzbekistan has also become increasingly assertive in its opposition to Russia's efforts at integration. Its foreign minister declared flatly in August 1996 
that Uzbekistan opposes the creation of CIS supranational institutions, which can be used as instruments of centralized control. Its strongly nationalistic posture had already prompted sharp denunciations in the Russian press concerning Uzbekistan's emphatically pro-West orientation in the economy, the harsh invective apropos integration treaties within the CIS, the decisive refusal to join even the customs union, and a methodical anti-Russian nationality policy. Even kindergartens which use Russian are being closed down. For the United States, which is pursuing, in the Asia region, a policy of the weakening of Russia, this position is so attractive. Even Kazakhstan, in reaction to Russian pressures, has come to favor a secondary, non-Russian route for its own outflows. As Umir Sarik Kazanov, the advisor to the Kazakh president, put it, It is a fact that Kazakhstan's search for alternative pipelines has been fostered by Russia's own actions, such as the limitations of shipments of Kazakhstan's oil to Novorossiysk and of the Tumin oil to the Pavlodor refinery. Turkmenistan's efforts to promote the construction of a gas line to Iran are partly due to the fact that the CIS countries pay only 60% of the world price or do not pay for it at all. Turkmenistan, for much the same reason, has been actively exploring the construction of a new pipeline through Afghanistan and Pakistan to the Arabian Sea, in addition to the energetic construction of new rail links with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan to the north and with Iran and Afghanistan to the south. Very preliminary and exploratory talks have also been held among the Kazakhs, the Chinese, and the Japanese regarding an ambitious pipeline project that would stretch from Central Asia to the China Sea. See map on page 146. With long-term Western oil and gas investment commitments in Azerbaijan reaching some 13 billion and in Kazakhstan going well over 20 billion, 1996 figures, the economic and political isolation of this area is clearly breaking down in the face of global economic pressures and limited Russian financial options. Fear of Russia has also had the effect of driving the Central Asian states into greater regional cooperation. The initially dormant Central Asian Economic Union, formed in January 1993, has been gradually activated. Even President Nursultan Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan, at first an articulate advocate of a new Eurasian Union, gradually became a convert to ideas of closer Central Asian cooperation increased military collaboration among the region's states, support for Azerbaijan's efforts to channel Caspian Sea and Kazakh oil through Turkey, and joint opposition to Russian and Iranian efforts to prevent the sectoral division of the Caspian Sea's continental shelf and mineral resources among the coastal states. Given the fact that the governments in the area tend to be highly authoritarian, perhaps even more important, has been the personal reconciliation among the principal leaders. It was common knowledge that the presidents of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan were not practically fond of one another, which they made eminently plain to foreign visitors, and that personal antagonism initially made it easier for the Kremlin to play off one against the other. By the mid-1990s, the three had come to realize that closer cooperation among them was essential to the preservation of their new sovereignty, and they began to engage in highly publicized displays of their allegedly close relations, stressing that henceforth 
they would coordinate their foreign policies. But more important still has been the emergence within the CIS of an informal coalition led by Ukraine and Uzbekistan, dedicated to the idea of a cooperative, but not integrated, Commonwealth. Toward this end, Ukraine has signed agreements on military cooperation with Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Georgia. And in September 1996, the foreign ministers of Ukraine and Uzbekistan even engaged in the highly symbolic act of issuing a declaration, demanding that henceforth CIS summits not be chaired by Russia's president, but that the chairmanship be rotated. The example set by Ukraine and Uzbekistan has had an impact even on the leaders who have been more deferential to Moscow's central concerns. The Kremlin must have been especially disturbed to hear Kazakhstan's Nursultan Nazarbayev and Georgia's Eduard Shevardnadze declare in September 1996 that they would leave the CIS, quote, if our independence is threatened, close quote. More generally, as a counter to the CIS, the Central Asian states and Azerbaijan stepped up their level of activity in the Organization of Economic Cooperation, a still relatively loose association of the region's Islamic states, including Turkey, Iran, and Pakistan, dedicated to the enhancement of financial, economic, and transportation links among its members. Moscow has been publicly critical of these initiatives, viewing them quite correctly as diluting the pertinent state's membership in the CIS. In a similar vein, there has been steady enhancement of ties with Turkey and, to a lesser extent, Iran. The Turkic-speaking countries have eagerly accepted Turkey's offers of military training for the new National Officers Corps and the laying down of the Turkish welcome mat for some 10,000 students. The fourth summit meeting of the Turkic-speaking countries, held in Tashkent in October 1996 and prepared with Turkish backing, focused heavily on the enhancement of transportation links, on increased trade, and also on common educational standards, as well as a closer cultural cooperation with Turkey. Both Turkey and Iran have been particularly active in assisting the new states with their television programming, thereby directly influencing large audiences. A ceremony in Alma-Ata, the capital of Kazakhstan, in December 1996 was particularly symbolic of Turkey's identification with the independence of the region's states. On the occasion of the fifth anniversary of Kazakhstan's independence, the Turkish president, Suleyman Demirel, stood at the side of President Nazarbayev at the unveiling of a gold-colored column 28 meters high crowned with a legendary Kazakh-Turkic warrior's figure atop a griffin-like creature. At the event, Kazakhstan held Turkey for standing by Kazakhstan at every step of its development and as an independent state, and the Turks reciprocated by granting Kazakhstan a credit line of $300 million beyond existing private Turkish investment of about $1.2 billion. While neither Turkey nor Iran has the means to exclude Russia from regional influence, Turkey, and more narrowly Iran, have thus been reinforcing the will and the capacity of the new states to resist reintegration with their northern neighbor and former master. And that, 
certainly helps to keep the region's geopolitical future open.